How independent is public media? Well, a report published last year shows that 80% of state-administered media worldwide does not have editorial independence, and it's getting worse. The percentage of um, state-controlled media uh, has increased all over the world. In countries where you have independent public media, there was, uh, at least over the past decade or so, a deterioration of editorial independence. The study looked at 546 state-administered media companies, and they were from over 150 countries. And out of all of those, only 18 were classified as truly independent public media. So does public media have a future? Well, in New Zealand, it would appear so. Details have just been announced of a new public media entity being set up. The new entity's centre of gravity is going to be around digital engagement, digital distribution. It'll be around all those new ways that people are connecting with media and spending their time. So does a digital realignment give new hope to independent public media? I'm Harry Locke, and from the Public Media Alliance, this is Media Uncovered. My name is Marius Dragomir and uh, I am the director of the Centre for Media Data and Society, which is an international uh, media research centre. Marius, thank you so much for, um, for joining me today and for agreeing to speak on the podcast. As part of your report, uh, The State of State Media, which I think was released last year, you, you came up with a really interesting way of being able to identify and label all the different types of, of state or public media. Are you able to explain that to me, please? This set of criteria consists of three buckets, as, as we call them. On the one hand, we have the funding. And here we were trying to understand whether state media are financially independent. We looked then at the governance and ownership uh, set of criteria. And here we wanted to establish whether uh, authorities uh, have uh, control over these bodies by appointing the members of their governing structures and by owning them. And the third one was the editorial independence. On the one hand, we had we analyzed the, the, the so-called positive factors, whether a media outlet has, for example, uh, mechanisms that, um, uh, that prevent them from being controlled editorially by the government. And on the other hand, we looked at how these media outlets uh, operate at the negative factors, and they can include, for example, laws that expressly say that these media uh, are mouthpieces of the government. So when you take this three sets of criteria together and you analyze them, you come up with a, a set of uh, models of state media uh, that are more or less independent. And I think that is important because understanding these forms of state media is important to really understand the impact that they have in some countries. It is really important also for the, uh, uh, for example, for journalists to, to really understand how editorial independence is gained and when they lose it. It's important for, for the citizens who live in a certain country and consume that media outlet to really understand where the, the content is coming. It's, so it's really important to, to really uh, look at, at how independent these media are and who has the highest level of control over their operation, especially the editorial uh, performance. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, how, how do you see the, the sort of the various categorizations play out what what are each of their impacts? Um, well, definitely the uh, uh, the state controlled media, and this is the type of media outlet controlled by the state from all points of view, so to speak, the worst case. This type of media outlet has probably the worst impact 
on the overall media consumption pattern, simply because they operate as propaganda channels. Their sole mission is to represent the interest and promote the interests of, of the government and, and the authorities. Then if you, if you go on this scale from this most extreme model of state control to less controlled media, you have the, the captured, either public or private media, where the governments influence the editorial coverage. Uh, those are also particularly dangerous because some of these media are not very transparent about their operations. So in many countries, they seem to be privately owned, and they are. But in fact, when it comes to the editorial control, uh, it is fully in the hands of the government. And then, of course, if you if you go into the more positive side of the of the spectrum in, of the metrics, you have independent state media that um, are either state funded or state managed. In in many cases. The fact that they are independent territorially is the most important thing. And then you go all the way up to the ideal form of state media, which is the independent public media model, where governments are implementing and designing forms of funding that do not secure their control over this media. They implement forms of governance and forms of ownership that distance the, the media outlets from the, the authorities, from the government. And then they have uh, very solid mechanisms in place to ensure that they are not editorial control and that is the, the one that I think everybody uh, with progressive ideas and researchers uh, who work in the field and journalists who want to work independently dream about now the problem is when you look at all these models the the problem that we have today is that the state control media model is prevalent uh, almost all over the world and uh, in, in contrast the, the independent public media model is uh, is still a reality only in a very limited number of countries i i was going to ask if it's a surprise to you 80 percent of these organizations that you studied lack editorial independence is that surprising is that is that a rough figure that, that you were expecting before you undertook this study it is not really uh, surprising because uh, there are some regions in the world where uh, nothing in the state media sector has changed for decades. Uh, if you look, for example, at uh, sub-Saharan Africa, the percentage of, uh, of state media outlets without uh, editorial independence is staggering. It's somewhere close to 97%, which means that, in fact, in the whole continent, you have just a few independent, editorially independent state media. But uh, when you look at that, nothing has changed for decades. And there have been a lot of factors that prevented the development of an independent public media sector. Also, if you look, for example, at uh, countries in the MENA region, the Middle East and North Africa region, uh, you have almost 90% of all the state media that operate in the region lacking editorial independence. And again, if you go back uh, two, three decades, nothing has changed in the way they are funded, in the way they are governed, and in the way they are editorially controlled. But um, uh, on the other hand, uh, what is worrying is that the percentage of um, state control media uh, has increased all over the world. And that, that increase is due to the fact that in countries where you have independent public media, there was, at least over the past decade or so, a deterioration of the uh, uh, state of editorial independence in many public media. In other words, in countries where traditionally the independent public media had the central role in the overall media ecosystem, we have seen negative 
uh, developments in the past few years. And that is worrying because most of the independent public media in the world uh, are located in Europe. In total, in fact, we, we found just a, a limited number of uh, independent public media, 18. That is really worrying. And, and most of this, as I said, most of the outlets are, are based in, in Western Europe. And where are we seeing that deterioration that you mentioned? Where is that happening where where the, the independence of, of public media has just fallen away? Yes, I think it's um, uh, there has been a, a tendency, especially in countries like in, in Central and Eastern Europe, where uh, the governments uh, embarked on a process of, of reform of the, the state media back in the 1990s. In many of these places, they, they totally failed in building a truly independent public media service sector. On the other hand, what we have noticed, and that is happening in more recent years, in some Western European countries that had a central and and powerful public media sector, increasingly authorities have started to to attack some of these broadcasters or to try to make changes in how these public media are organized. And research uh, is showing that they have been doing that because they are trying to gain more control over the editorial agenda of these broadcasters. Here we are talking about, for example, some years ago, a set of attacks by uh, right-wing parties against the public broadcaster in Austria, uh, here we are talking about the debate about the funding models uh, of the public media in Denmark, a country that has had uh, for decades a really powerful public media sector and where, again, uh, authorities have been trying to cut their res- their financial resources, uh, which uh, is likely to, to lead to a, a deterioration of the quality of their programming and also, in the end, probably to some loss of their editorial independence. We see, as we speak, a lot of attempts in the UK to reform the public broadcaster, the BBC, which for many countries all over the world is the paragon of uh, public media, independent public media. And in fact, if some of these plans of one of the political parties in the UK will will go ahead, I, I, I'm afraid that even this broadcaster will suffer a lot and will have its editorial independence damaged quite badly. I suppose it's difficult because region by region, we're talking about different starting points and so we're moving in different directions. If we maybe look at the regions where historically a true independent public media has never really been established, is their appetite to move towards that? Well, I don't think there is uh, any appetite to develop that. I think if you look at countries that uh, historically have had uh, a model of state media that is designed as a propaganda channel, and here I'm talking about the most extreme cases, such as uh, North Korea, China, Venezuela these days, there is not much there is not much to change in, in, in those societies. If you go to countries like those nations in sub-Saharan Africa or some countries in, in the Middle East and North Africa region where there have been attempts in the past to reform their state media, sometimes you, you find that appetite. And from time to time, you have like more progressive governments interested in redesigning their uh, their state media system to make it more independent. That appetite is, is, uh, is ebbing away very rapidly. Well, amidst all this, let's now turn to the future, and to one country in particular where a recent announcement by the government suggested what the future of public media could be. New Zealand's public media system is currently made up of two distinct separate entities. There's Radio New Zealand, non-commercial, funded through the budget, and there's Television New Zealand, commercial, six times the budget of RNZ, and is required to return a profit to the government. 
but both these organisations are to be subsumed into one giant new one, a new public media entity that will still maintain the radio and television focus of the two current entities, but will have a much broader remit, namely digital. Paul Thompson is Radio New Zealand's chief executive, and he explains why the government decided to do something in the first place. So the first thing is it knew it needed to do something. It looked around the world and saw things such as the rise of the global platforms and the almost unrivaled power of the likes of Facebook and Netflix and Apple and Google. It kind of looked at increasing polarisation in countries that are quite similar to New Zealand and a falling level of trust in the media. And it probably looked at its own resources and thought, if we're going to make a significant step forward in public broadcasting, it kind of needs to be a policy which covers the two major entities that it owns, RNZ, which is a public broadcaster, commercial free, and TVNZ, which is a publicly owned commercial TV broadcaster. It kind of needs to use those as foundation blocks and the investment it wants to make, it needs to be across both those organisations. And I think that brought them to this idea of creating the new entity, which would be a public media entity and which would combine the the strengths of both RNZ and TVNZ and would then create some new services. So I think the government policy in the end was designed to make sure that New Zealand has at least one well-resourced, comprehensive public media entity with a clear charter that it would be able to be big and strong and resilient and flexible enough to actually be really useful for New Zealanders despite that disruption, despite the power of the platforms, despite weakening commercial models, business models, that you'd at least have one really strong source of trusted news and current affairs, um, national coverage, combining regional coverage, content and programming that celebrates our culture and our languages and actually is big enough to make a difference. So I think that's the kind of journey. When you look at levels of trust in media on an organisation by organisation basis in New Zealand, we do see RNZ and TVNZ both at the top there. So so is it a, when we think about the output of both at the moment, is that something that perhaps shouldn't change? Because actually, when you look at that, they're the things where RNZ and TVNZ perhaps perform strongest? Yeah, look, it is. It's, I mean, it's a real, it's going to be a very powerful organisation if you think of bringing in those high level of trust to the new entity. But I think they do need to be very carefully handled because those high levels of trust have been built over decades. And it, it's very difficult to rebuild again if you lose it. One interesting aspect of the policy is the emphasis on new capability and new services for new audiences that aren't particularly well served by public media, balanced by quite a degree of continuity. So the language in the cabinet paper is around trusted and valued services will continue and anything that's non-commercial at the moment remains non-commercial. So I think that is an acknowledgement that neither organisation is in trouble or not performing well. And you kind of have to nurture and protect the things that audiences trust and value at the moment. But you also can't let the kind of defense of that status quo stop you from over time building something stronger and better. So I think it's a sensible balance between the new and the existing. And it means that, you know, on day one of the new entity, a lot of people will get up and do the job that they did the day earlier. But then eventually new 
investment will come in and new opportunities will flow from that. And, you know, the thing that the brutal reality of all media at the moment and all public media is that we have this really strong connection with older audiences and we have a less strong connection with younger audiences. And you just need to sort of run that through the next five or 10, 15 years to say that the new entity needs to make great inroads in terms of creating content that is relevant to younger people and communities beyond Pākehā. And it needs to do that not by sort of shoving more stuff down the pipe at them. It needs to do that by actually hiring and developing people from those communities, giving them the opportunity to create stories and programming and perspectives for those communities. So that that is really exciting, I have to say. That's the exciting bit. And and you have been we um we saw the detail or some of the detail I should say from the government earlier this month when when it was um the cabinet paper was released and you described it as a a watershed moment when you looked at the cabinet paper what what was it about that that made you de- describe it as so significant for New Zealand media New Zealand has always lacked in my view that one strong public media entity with a very clear public media charter what makes this different is the singular strength of that public media entity. The government's basically looked at it and said, we don't need a publicly owned media entity that does some public media work. We need a public media entity that has crown and non-crown funding to it. So they've kind of got it the right way around. I like to think of the four building blocks the government's put in place with the policy. First, it's a public media entity, clearly with all the attributes of the best class around the world. The second thing, it has a charter that'll be enshrined, and I've seen the draft charter, and it's very powerful. The third building block is deepening commitment to te reo Māori, te ao Māori, and te tiriti, you know, the, uh, the foundational relationship that New Zealand has as a nation between Māori and Pākehā. So that's the third building block. And the fourth building block, is, and I was really pleased about this one, is they've said that this new entity has a responsibility to support plurality and diversity across the wider media sector. So it's quite an interesting idea, right? You're building a new entity that will be able to do a lot more for all audiences with crown funding and some commercial activity, but it has to deliver a public media mandate above all else, and it actually has to collaborate and partner with other media to kind of support the wider media ecosystem. So I think that's where I look at those four things, Harry, and I think that is that is foundational change, and that's that watershed I referred to. How do you think this will then fit into the commercial landscape as well, or, or, or how do you see the commercial sector viewing this is this going to be a are they going to be slightly intimidated and maybe slightly fearful of maybe a a, a behemoth organization that could do away with competition i think they're watchful and kind of reserving judgment at the moment the 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 commercial outlets i've talked to um, several of the ceos in the last few weeks and i think what they're saying is well we want to see the detail but i think um my own personal view is that at RNZ, we've shown the power of collaboration with the sector, that the public actually benefits from publicly funded content partnering with uh, other media outlets. Um, so we have our radical sharing strategy where we license our content very freely and reach a lot of audience through other media outlets. We also have our version of the BBC's local democracy reporting 
joint venture, which we did as a joint venture with the publishers in New Zealand. So, and I look at that fourth building block I talked about, Harry, that requirement, this new entity in its charter and in its legislation will be not just um, you know, encouraged to be a good partner and collaborate, but actually required to make the whole ecosystem healthier. And I think that's a real um, game changer. I mean, this overall is a really, it's a really interesting direction of travel that we're seeing in New Zealand and that's running perhaps against the direction of travel that we see other public media organisations or uh, public interest media organisations are experiencing in other parts of the world. If we take Hungary, for example, and you see the past decade there where the government has been able to effectively undercut independent media and that is also being mirrored in other parts of eastern europe in other parts of the western world perhaps we're seeing not so much a uh, a sort of control of it but at least questions over the integrity and independence and the funding mechanisms of those uh, public media organizations i mean why is it do you think that new zealand is looking to push back against maybe that global move where public media is coming under pressure. I think it's a really good observation, Harry, that you know these are challenging times for public media around the world. To me, that sort of speaks of a couple of things. One is that public media are really influential and highly trusted, and certain politicians and certain political regimes will always look to either capitalise on that for their own ends or minimise that influence. And we're kind of in that political cycle at the moment. Um, the other thing is that uh, you know there was a time when public broadcasters were kings and queens of the castle, and you know really strong and and very powerful. That's the edges come off that because of the rise of those global platforms who can out engineer and outspend even the biggest public broadcasters. So you know there, there's some really big trends there which are creating some heavy seas for public broadcasting. I think from New Zealand's point of view, we're in a different political cycle. We have a Labour government in power at the moment, and they are pro-public broadcasting, which is no surprise. So some of it is just the timing of the political cycle. I think the other aspect is New Zealand's never really had that comprehensive public media entity which is proposed. So it's it's new ground. And I think the good thing is we're doing it while the country is still a really healthy, vibrant democracy. I think um, th- this is a really great example of, of where public media and not just public broadcasting, but where public media is moving to. The fact that we have two organisations, one with radio in the title and one with television in the title, are actually now having to shift away. And how, as, as we mentioned earlier, to... to face up to the challenges being posed by the, uh, the the tech giants, that that does need to happen and that we need these all-round comprehensive organisations to be able to provide their own material and their own platforms that, that people can go to. Does this uh, entity, this new entity, in terms of the detail you've seen, does that guarantee that? Does it, does it at least sort of offer the space for this organisation to be able to do that? Well, it's the whole basis of it. It's the whole rationale for it. So, and the logic of the of the of the cabinet paper is that um, RNZ and TVNZ are doing really well with their current mandates, and we've both successfully pushed into streaming, into 
digital delivery into social media. RNZ does video, for example. We just picked up three New Zealand television awards. So both organizations are doing a pretty good job, but the mandates don't actually focus either organization on the future and the future as digital media companies. The new entity center of gravity is going to be around digital engagement, digital distribution. It'll be around all those new ways that people are connecting with and 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 um, connecting with media and spending their time. So I think it is absolutely the core of, of the plan. And that's where the significant investment will need to be made to kind of create this organization that can be as relevant in 10 or 20 years time as RNZ and TVNZ are at the moment. That's a given, I think. And the balance will be between maintaining those trusted existing services and over time moving more into those new services for new audiences. So does a digital transition contain the secrets for public media's survival and ongoing relevance? Let's return to Marius. You cannot rebuild a state media system in in the countries that had for most of their history just state-controlled media. But I think we we can think, especially with the advantages that were brought about by by the new technologies, we can think about ways to promote, to spread and to implement uh, forms of public media in areas and spaces other than those controlled by the government. This can be uh, projects developing public service media content designed with less money, in fact, in various online or digital platforms. They can be uh, developed through, um, uh, through organizations that, that are looking and researching this, uh, these models, such as universities or academic think tanks where you work with younger people interested in these ideas. So there are ways to really try to promote the idea of independent public media, but they have to be adjusted to the current context. Uh, I was going to say, and, and y- you know, the remit of which those organizations might be able to operate within might be fairly limited in its scope because of I guess the sort of the the work they were doing would have to be in some ways approved by the government in itself as well all all public media in the world are undergoing major changes these days even in countries in western europe uh, where they had for decades almost since their establishment the trust of the people and they operated based on funding models that are ensuring editorial editorial independence and all the conditions for journalists to do their job uh, independently and properly even in in those places uh, we see these days that the whole public service media model is 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 will will have to change because the realities are different people pay for content in a different ways than they did 10 years ago people consume media content in in totally different ways they did it 10 or 15 years ago so i think in general every single public media outlet will have to change in in the next decade and in practice how does it embrace the the digitalization of of the past 10 15 20 years how does it make the most of the current way people digest news and and want to consume news does it look to the social media platforms how do we make sure that 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 information remains relevant and remains so accessible to the people who who need to use it 
Well, first of all, yes, if you look at the overall media ecosystem, you have the news production entities, either commercial companies or, or public service media or state media. Uh, and on the other hand, you have the, the distribution platforms that play a very important role because they simply act as a distributor for this content. Now, the two are separate. So the, the answer to your question is yes, at the moment, the only, the only way for this content to reach audiences is by using the popular platforms that we have. <laughs> there is no not much to do against that trend. They are powerful. They have they reach out to, to people all over the world. But on the other hand, I strongly believe that uh, public service media, in a way, as a way to maybe be less dependent on these commercially funded global platforms, should really think and invest in designing their own platforms or their own uh, formats that that are able to connect with their audiences. In other words, they really have to to create parallel competitive. Uh, platforms that are able to compete with the current distribution companies uh, that operate in the world. One very important part of that is when it comes to funding, to governance structures, to editorial control, uh, is to, to think about designing such platforms that put the viewer, the audience, at the center of the whole establishment. That is really important because what we see on social media and why the social media are so, so popular is because they transfer the power over content to all of its users. And this is something that public service media should do. They should put the, the public at the center of their future operations. And that doesn't mean citizens should only be informed, for example, about what is happening in these media outlets, but they should be actually involved in the actual running of the platforms. They, they should be part of the whole governance structures of the future public service media uh, entities in whatever form they will evolve. Marius Dragomir, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks very much to my guests, Paul Thompson and Marius Dragomir. I really hope you enjoyed listening. Thanks also to Lucas Thompson, Rachel Still and Tom Brazier for writing the music. We're going to be back next month and that's going to be a panel conversation episode. It's going to be discussing journalist safety, how reporters can equip themselves with the online tools which will protect them against online harassment, hacking and abuse from both private and state actors.